according to Barna Research in an analysis that was entitled The New Sunday Morning, one in three practicing Christians are still attending their pre-COVID church, whether digitally online or whether they are now meeting in person. One in three, that's one third of practicing Christians are still attending their pre-COVID church. Another 34% are digitally church hopping, visiting one church or another. And one third, 32%, are doing neither. They're not attending the church that they were attending and part of before COVID. And they're not even church hopping. They're just doing nothing. Further analysis reveals that half of practicing Christian millennials are not attending church. Half. And of the previous generations of Gen X, those are people of the generation like NECA or Courtney, and boomers like UK, Oral, the percentages are 35% of Gen X. Now these are practicing Christians. 35% of Gen X are not attending church and 26% of boomers are not attending church. Now, once again, we're not talking about unbelievers. We are talking about people who have made a commitment to follow Jesus Christ. In reality, these statistics underscore what was already a substantial trend toward self-curated practice of Christianity. Now, the word curate means to guard, to protect. You have curators of museums. They are guarding and protecting valuable things. What does it mean to self-curate? It means I determine that my life is valuable. I determine that my time is valuable. And I determine what's important to me. I make the decisions about me. And so when we talk about a self-curating Christianity, we are talking about a way of life among practicing Christians where the individual has the ultimate say over their priorities, what their Christian lifestyle will look like, what it means for them by their definition to follow Jesus Christ. Since Pentecost, we've been in a series entitled True Gospel, Real Disciples. And in the first part of a two-part sermon, we want to look at the true nature of a disciple and understand what it means and what the true nature 
of a disciple will look like, what it will motivate one to do, what it will give evidence of, what will be the result of a disciple who is real, who has a true nature that comes with following Jesus. Now, let's take a few minutes to understand this idea of discipleship. This is a common word in Christian vocabulary. We talk about discipleship. Well, what do we mean? Remember that Jesus said to his disciples just before he left them, as they were gathered there on the mount, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. This is from the New Living Translation. Now, the word disciple, as it is used in the New Testament, means a follower, a pupil, Remember Jesus when he called his first disciples. He came out of the desert, having been tempted by the devil, having spent time fasting and praying, and now anointed with the Holy Spirit. He began preaching a message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw some fishermen. What did he say to two who were named Peter and Andrew? Come, follow me. He said the same thing to two who were the sons of Zebedee, James and John. Come, follow me. And we are told that immediately they left everything and they followed him. They made a decision. And Jesus also said something else to them. I will teach you to be fishers of men. Your earthly father taught you how to catch fish in the Sea of Galilee. I'm going to teach you to be fishers of men. So come and learn what it means to do what I am doing. It is here in this verse where it, Jesus said, make disciples, that we get the understanding of discipleship. It's a sense of process. It means to follow as a disciple, to train in discipleship, or to be trained and disciplined. So it is that process of either Helping someone become a disciple or becoming a disciple yourself. Note that the command of Jesus to make disciples has several things of which make the whole. Number one, there's a beginning. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then there is a process teaching these new disciples to obey. And then there is a specific standard. What are they to obey? 
the one whom they are following? How do they know what to obey, what to do? Whether they are truly a disciple of Jesus. And that standard is the commands that I have given you. The commands, the lifestyle that Jesus himself embodies. I have given you. But the reality is that when Jesus calls someone to follow him, it doesn't sound appealing at all. At least not in the way that Jesus presents it. We have read the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 14. And we read these words beginning with verse 15. Luke chapter 14, verse 15. When some of those at the table heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus responded by telling a story. A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought a yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. But please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married. I can't come. The servant came back and reported to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Now, you and I understand that Jesus told a number of parables regarding banquets. And typically, those banquets were referring to the end of time and what it would mean to be at that final banquet. The book of Revelation pictures it as the wedding supper of the bride and the and the Lamb, the bride being the church of Jesus Christ, clothed in white garments, which represent the righteous acts of the saints. And so once again, Jesus is looking toward the end of time. Many have been invited, but who will actually be there? 
Luke tells us that a large crowd is following Jesus. And he turned to them and he said, words that are so unappealing that causes us to ask the question, why does Jesus make it so unappealing to follow him? What did he say to the large crowd? If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And then a third time, after telling a story, giving a couple of examples about counting the cost, if you are going to succeed instead of lose, he said this, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have, cannot be my disciple. Those are not very appealing words, are they? And they aren't very inviting. Doesn't that make you want to run to Jesus? Doesn't that make you want to give up everything? I mean, how often do we present the gospel to someone and say, but let me warn you, before you pray the sinner's prayer and have the assurance of eternal life, this is going to cost you everything. In fact, you're going to have to hate your own life and give up everything you have to follow Jesus. Does Jesus really want us to give up everything? Does he really want us not to have anything and to even hate our own lives? Back at the beginning of this series, I shared with you a number of clips of different prominent preachers preaching their brand of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the aftermath of sharing that, someone sent me a question, does God really want us to be poor? You remember the interview between Mr. Osteen and Oprah when she asked the question, what kind of God would want us to be poor? And Mr. Osteen agreed with her. What kind of God would indeed? The fact is that God doesn't care whether you are poor or not. That is of no particular value to him. In fact, there are many, many, many Christians who are serving Jesus Christ all over the world who are, as we would say, dirt poor. And there are many Christians who are serving God who have more than enough. It is no particular indication of God's favor or of his blessing on one's life. Again, I tell you, God doesn't particularly care whether you and I are poor or not. 
What he has said to us is, you pray every day. Give us this day our daily bread. And he promises that he will supply all of our needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. And if we have a lot, Jesus warns us. In fact, Jesus never talked about wealth except with warnings. He never affirmed it. He never said that it was God's blessing. But he always spoke of wealth in words of warning. You cannot serve two masters. Specifically, you cannot serve both God and money. And then he warned, don't lay up treasures here on earth. Make sure that you are laying up treasures in heaven. He told a parable warning of a man who stored up here on earth, whose barns were full, who had more than enough. He didn't need to ask the Lord for daily bread. He didn't need to trust the Lord to supply all of his needs. When it comes to having more than enough, Jesus reminds us that to whom much is given, much will be required. Again, all of this is the opposite of what we think God ought to be like. It is certainly the opposite of the kind of God that Oprah is looking for. And the kind of God that Mr. Osteen is preaching. But these are the words of Jesus. Jesus certainly did not sound very appealing to the crowd that day. This large crowd who was following him because he is the popular teacher. And yet he said to them, if you don't hate everyone in your life and hate your own life, you cannot be my disciple. What does Jesus mean by such severe words? Why does he speak about discipleship, about following him in these kinds of terms? Following Jesus is more than a decision. Several weeks ago, we emphasized that there is more to believing than believing. And following Jesus is more than just making a decision. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, at the end of his sermon, Peter gave this instruction to the people who were convicted of sin. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And note, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized. You and I remember that this was what Jesus was saying to his disciples. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And in this command to make disciples, Jesus established a beginning point for those who follow him. Baptism. 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is not simply a formula that Jesus is giving. A way in which we baptize someone. And baptism is not simply a ritual, a act that we go through because we know that it's the proper thing to do. It's much more. Baptism follows repentance. Notice Peter's words, repent and be baptized. Jesus had previously said to his disciples, this gospel must be preached in all the world to everyone for repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Baptism follows repentance. Repentance is the recognition that my choices are wrong, that I am a sinner, and that my choices, my ways, lead to death. In other words, a self-curated life is not one that has God's blessing. Throughout Scripture, self and sin is synonymous. And so whether we are talking about a particular act of sin, or whether we are talking about the inclinations within me to do what serves my purpose, to act according to my feelings, to be governed by my emotions and my preferences. It is synonymous with a way of which I need to repent and declare that it is the wrong way that it doesn't lead me towards God. There is only one way that leads me to God, and that is the way of Jesus. And so in repentance, I turn to accept and follow Jesus. And thus repentance becomes my public testimony that I have rejected my life, a self-curated life, a life in which self has the say and how I will live and how I will do. I've rejected my life and way to embrace the life of Jesus and to follow his way. Once again, repentance comes before baptism. And baptism is a public testimony of repentance. I have abandoned my way. I've rejected it as being wrong. I've embraced the way of Jesus Christ. Baptism represents a transforming spiritual work. One that is often called being born again. When a person is truly born again, he is brought into union with Christ, into new life with Jesus. As we have said, baptism is not a ritual. It is not something that we simply engage in when our children are babies 
We have them baptized, christened. It's not something that we as parents want for our children when they reach a certain age. It is a public testimony of an inner work, a work that began with our own recognition of our sinfulness. And when we put our faith in Christ, it produced a transforming work within us. We were born again. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians, and he said, In the past, you were just like everyone else in the world. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You follow the promptings of your inner self and sin-oriented human nature. You were obedient to the God of this world, the spirit of disobedience. And we were by nature, by the kind of people we inwardly were, that caused us to do the things that we did outwardly, we were objects of God's wrath. But now you who were dead in trespasses and sins have been made alive in Jesus Christ. When a person is truly born again, you will see the evidence of a new life. They are not the same person that they were. They have been brought into union with Jesus Christ. And his life is evident within them. The Apostle Paul wrote words in Romans chapter 5 that are very familiar to us. He ended that chapter by saying, Where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. And then he continued, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore baptized with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. The death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So once again, the person who has truly been born again is transformed. There is new life within them. Their desire is not to go on sinning. Their desire is not to go their own way. You can tell when you watch that person's life that they are living to God. Because they are following Jesus. They are following his ways. They are living out the life of Jesus Christ within them. Now Jesus told the apostles. 
to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then he said, teach these new disciples to obey all the commands that I have given you. Now, teaching involves learning. And it is evident after the day of Pentecost that these people have truly been transformed, that they truly have new life as a result of repenting and being baptized. For we read that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayer. To be a disciple, we need to learn. We need to be taught. And we need to be taught continuously. We need to place ourselves in the posture of being taught. And we need to learn what it means to follow Jesus. But it is more than just information. There is more to it than just learning things. The person who is truly saved, as we have said, is born again. She has a new life, one in which she is spiritually alive and able to follow Jesus and live the Christ life. In other words, she has a new nature. And that nature is evidenced by the presence and the working of the indwelling spirit. Now, when we read about Jesus, we read that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And it was the spirit who enabled him to do the mission, to do the work, to speak the words that the Father had sent him to do. In fact, we read in Hebrews chapter 9 that it was through the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus overcame temptation and kept himself unblemished from any sin so that he could offer himself as a perfect sacrifice and make atonement for our sins. So this is a very important matter. Again, the one who is truly born again has a new nature, has a new life. Whenever we read about the Spirit, there's always that connection to pneuma, or breath, or life. The Holy Spirit makes spiritually alive. Jesus said you must be born again by the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans and said, those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. How do you or I know if we have truly been born again? If we are truly in union with Jesus Christ, it will be seen by the fact that we desire what the Spirit of God desires. We don't desire what self desires, what sin desires. The reality is that 
you and I have two natures at work within us. One of those natures is associated with our inherently self-oriented and sinful human nature. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 7 and said, I have two natures at war within me. One that is influencing me to do what I don't want to do. What I know is wrong. And one that is influencing me to do what I know is right. What is Christ-like? And that is the reality for you and me. Now, before we came to know Christ, we didn't care. We just did whatever we wanted to do. But when someone is truly born again, the Spirit of God is within them. Remember what Peter said, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes, and takes residence within you and me, we have different desires, different values. We see things about ourselves differently than we did before. What we used to affirm in our lives, we now hate. What we used to like and coddle and bear as a mark of pride, now we can't stand it any longer. We hate our own lies. We don't want to be like who we are and what we are. We want to be like Jesus. We want to die to who we are. We don't want to hold on. We want to give up. We want Christ to have his way within us. We have a now alive spiritual nature. Previously, that spiritual nature was dead. And Satan worked through our feelings, our thoughts, our appetites, our physical and sensual desires. So that we follow the ways of the world. And we follow the sinful self-nature within us. But now the Spirit of God resides within us when we have been born again. There is a new nature within us. A spiritual nature that is alive to Christ. That is receptive to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And that now alive spiritual nature gives us the desire to follow Christ. To obey him. And to live like him. The Apostle Paul continued speaking to the Romans and said, Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are not controlled by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if indeed God lives in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. 
For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Before we came to know Jesus Christ, we were capable of only one thing. Doing whatever suited ourselves. We lived under the power and the authority of sin. When we come to Jesus Christ in repentance of sins, and when we turn to God to change us and transform us by the power of the Holy Spirit, there are now a new set of desires within us. And what we formerly desired to do takes a back seat to wanting to do what Christ wants us to do. Now, the reality is that both of those natures are still present within us. As long as we are in our human body, there will be an inclination to sin. Our feelings will get hurt. We will desire things of the world. Our minds and our attitudes will veer towards self or towards those feelings, emotions, thought lines, philosophies of this world. But if we are truly born again, the Spirit of God is within us and we have a new nature. And we are capable of knowing Jesus and following him. Capable of knowing his thoughts. Wanting not to be like ourselves, but wanting to be like him. But should we choose to yield to self, it will produce death within us. And if we yield to the spirit to lead us to be like Christ, it will produce life within us. This is not the only place that the Apostle Paul talks about this issue and talks about the life that should be represented within us, visible within us if we are followers of Jesus Christ. He wrote to the Galatians and he said, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you as I did before, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires 
are those who belong to Christ. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. What part of you do you follow? What life is most evident within you? Do you put to death yourself in order that you may live to Christ? Remember, he said, if anyone does not hate his own life, he cannot be my disciple. The way of self never leads us towards Christ. It only leads us towards death. Let me ask you today, what is your desire? Do people see within you the desires of the Spirit and the ways of Jesus Christ? Do they see a true nature of Christ emanating from your life, determining your decisions, your desires, your responses, your lifestyle? Or do they see you? You and I have been given this wonderful invitation to abandon everything about ourselves because it always leads to death. To die to who we are, to what we want, to what we like, and to embrace the life of Jesus Christ. To be led by the Holy Spirit and to experience the fullness of the blessing of Christ. It used to be that we just had one nature and we naturally follow that nature. But now we have been made spiritually alive. We have a new nature. And we have the opportunity to follow the spirit of God into a life that honors Jesus Christ. One that looks like him, one that reflects him in everything. What nature is being manifested in your life? What does your heart desire? What does your life look like? May it be that you and I desire nothing else but the nature of Jesus leading us into a life that brings great honor and great likeness to him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have not left us in the ignorance and the darkness of sin. We thank you that you have brought us to salvation through the light of the gospel. We thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit. Oh, Lord, how we thank you. You've given us hearts that desire what you desire. That's why we are here today. You've given us a longing to honor Jesus Christ with our lives. 
You've given us a passion as a church that the gospel would be preached in all the nations and disciples would be made in those nations. Father, we pray that you would keep us true to our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that our hearts would always belong to him and that you, Holy Spirit, would rule over our hearts, our thoughts, our decisions, our lifestyles. Father, we pray that we would never embrace or return to a self-curated life putting ourselves in charge of our lives. But may we always live by the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit of Christ. And so we pray for one another, but most of all, we pray for ourselves today. May you truly and always be Lord of our lives. Lord, over our hearts and our desires, and in every way, may we evidence that new nature and that life of Jesus Christ so the world can see the beauty of Jesus, the value of Jesus, and want to leave everything, and yes, even hate their own lives to follow Jesus. Would you accomplish that in us this week? Through the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.